It's my favorite time of day. Welcome to Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Don Eubanks, associate at Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church, Duluth, Minnesota, and senior partner at Dendros Group. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. And I'm Halili, owner of the other media group and producer of Counter Stories. And we've got two special guests with us. Hello, everybody. My name is Angela Goins, and I am a registered dietitian uh, who owns a private practice here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I've been practicing for almost two decades, and I work specifically in the mental health field of eating disorders. I've worked in uh, higher-level care treatments, um, lower-level care treatment, and currently I'm uh, working in outpatient um, in my private practice. I also do consulting and supervision for both peers and for um, those seeking to come into the field. Uh, My partner and I, uh, Whitney, who's going to share a little bit about herself, uh, have created something really fabulous. Hi, everyone. I am Whitney Trotter. I'm a registered dietitian, nurse, and yoga teacher. I currently reside in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, I have, similar to Angela, worked at every level of care. for eating disorders, and I own my own private practice specializing in eating disorders. Um, I also do consultation, and I do um, human trafficking work as well. So welcome, Angela and Whitney. Um, I'd say about, say a little over about a month, month and a half ago, um, Angela reached out to me. Uh, Angela and, and, and Whitney are putting together a, a BIPOC eating disorder conference. And my mind just kind of just, I don't even know what I'm trying to say here. It blew your mind. It, thank you. <laughs> because I've never, you know, we're, we're here in the Twin Cities and, um, and we're all aware of, uh, eating disorders, but I've never heard of a conference designed specifically for, uh, BIPOC populations and eating disorders. So it intrigued me deeply. And I was honored that Angela and Whitney have agreed to join us here on Counter Stories. So, Angela, could you please jump in and and please, you and Whitney, provide us some background on how this came about and what it is that you two hope to do with this conference? Yeah, so I'm going to share the floor here with Whitney because this is really her um, idea and we had talked about it over time. But I wanted to share a little bit first why I reached out to um, Donald. So originally, um, we definitely wanted this to be an inclusive conference. So as far as we know, this is the first of its kind. Um, And with this pandemic and everything being offered virtually, we thought this was a prime opportunity to bring this to a larger population, of course. We want uh, providers or presenters, I should say, to um, have somewhat of a marginalized identity We want people to speak to the white community and mental health in particular, uh, to share uh, from different perspectives and to hear from different um, uh, presenters on this this topic. So it's it's quite large. It's going to be a three-day conference. And part of the reason, uh, as I was Googling, uh, searching in the area as I live in Minneapolis, looking for um, somebody to help us start off the conference 
to um, really provide land acknowledgement to honor um, those before us and to be clear that we we don't own this land and we wanted to make sure that we had representation for that. We didn't want to be out here um, doing that work when somebody else could be. So Donald definitely uh, was wonderful in responding to me and, and, and providing a whole lot of education around that. So <laughs> um, what I learned and, and also with, with Whitney was uh, from Donald, but that, that doesn't need to be done by an indigenous pers- uh, person in particular that we just uh, even considering that and wanting to bring that into our um, uh, our opening ceremonies, if you will, and to acknowledge that um, was enough respect and, and, and to make sure that we did that correctly. We're, we're both in two different states actually, and this is a national conference, but to be able to own that and to start the conference off in that way, um, he, he provided a lot of education around that. So I'm not sure if you want to say anything more about that, Donald, but it was really helpful for us uh, to understand. <laughs> well, Angela, I was very honored that you reached out to me. And, I, and you know, we, we had, I thought we had a fantastic conversation around that. Um, the, the fact that, the fact that um, you, your willingness and awareness about that is all that was needed. And, and so I thought it was a great conversation, but more importantly, the topic of your conference, you know, the, 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 this three day conference that you two are pulling together. And um, just like I said, was intriguing. And, and the fact that you two have graciously agreed to join us here for, for uh, one of our Connor stories podcasts. So I was wondering, Whitney, um, Angela kind of mentioned that uh, this might be your brainchild. So I was wondering if you could jump in and, and provide us some background about that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I have been working in the, the mental health nutrition field for over a decade and um just really notice how whitewashed eating disorders are. And that's from like the marketing, the advocacy, the research, but there are so many people of color that are experts um, within the realm of eating disorders. And nobody, um, I actually got my start as a dietitian working in the HIV and AIDS community. And nobody was talking about eating disorders in black and brown people, but definitely not in the infectious disease community. And so after 2020, everything that was happening, um, there was just a lot of empty and false promises from a lot of these eating disorder organizations that, you know, make hundreds of thousands of dollars on this commitment to do better, to be more inclusive. And I just wasn't seeing it. So um, Angela and I had um, connected and bonded and I called her one day and I was like, I have a wild idea. I was like, I want to start a conference. And Angela was like, okay. And um, so I was like, I'm going to call up all of our colleagues and the friends that we've met. And I'm going to ask them if they're, you know, what their niche, whatever they want to speak on, um, if they're willing to do it. And it kind of just birthed from there. So here we are. Um, Yeah, I think I called and I think I called her in like, January or February, and she was like, wait, what? In 2022? <laughs> and I was like, I was like, yeah, yeah, girl, 2022. Uh, it was originally supposed to be in May, but I'm really glad we did it. And I'm really glad we did July for uh, July's BIPOC Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, 
and we're going to create a week. There's never been a BIPOC eating disorder awareness week. So we're going to not only create this conference, but hopefully start this week um, just as a part of our, our legacy. And for many, many years and decades to come, hopefully we'll continue to, to live on. Can I just say how excited this is to hear both of you going down this path? I mean, there's so many reasons that I'm excited. Uh, and to be clear, both of you identify as BIPOC women so that, you know, our, our listeners are all on the radio, so they might be wondering. Um, but it it is, I love that you're both uh, business owners, that you have your own practices, you know, and the entrepreneurial spirit that goes there. And to me, this conference is part of your entrepreneurial um, spirit, right? And, and putting together a conference that would be the first of its kind in our country, which gives me chills. And I think 2022 really has taken us this long, but so be it, right? And so you you are then leading us through that path, uh, but also just the vision of including other professionals at the table as well on this very important topic, which ends up being taboo too often in our individual communities, BIPOC communities. You know, when I when I think about um, and to the, I don't know, disappointment or maybe elatement of my colleagues here, I did look at some statistics. Uh, <laughs> 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 I get teased about this all the time. That black, So they are as follows that I, that I was able to find. Black teenagers are 50% more likely than their white teenage counterparts to suffer from bulimia, binging, and, and purging. And then Latinx teenagers were significantly more likely to suffer from bulimia nervosa than their non-Hispanic uh, peers. And then of course, BIPOC women who are, they have so many intersectionalities that uh, demand more in terms of the stress and uh, a heavier load from a mental health perspective that then opens the door for propensity of this as well. Uh, I wanted to first understand though, um, just what your experience has been, you know, from a high level, of course, not breaching any confidentiality issues with your patients, but how does it even begin to come to your attention because of the taboo factor, right? I'm Latina. I, my, my parents are both from Mexico. And this is just something that people do not talk about. Uh, and instead, um, there's a level of, shame that goes on in our, and I'll again speak for my culture growing up in, in the Mexican community about not only not talking about it, but also in, um, a shame about just body image that has got to look a certain way. And if you don't look a certain way, you get bullied, you know, and you get shamed by your peers, but actually adults as well. And, and I, to this day, I, I'm small framed and I tend to be on the lighter end of the weight scale for my size. And, you know, <laughs> when I go back home to Chicago to visit relatives, someone always has to make a comment about my weight as if I am intentionally seeking to be this weight, which I don't, I mean, it's just my metabolism. And then secondly, this, um, the shame about why, why aren't you like the rest of us? Like, why, why do you have this body size that you do, you know, and I can't change that. And, and, you know, I, I try to be 
you know, responsive in a kind way to them, like, you know, it is what it is. And, and let's just move on from that. But sometimes, I mean, people start to get in really deep about wanting to get into your business about all this stuff. Oh, you know? Luz, so- I just stopped. I just stopped answering people. Like when, for me, like when I, before college, I had a thyroid problem. So I was like, I never broke a hundred pounds and it was a constant, why are you so skinny? Why don't you eat more? You must not like your mom's cooking, you know, that kind of stuff. After I got treated, I gained a lot of weight because I learned, you know, before when I had my thyroid issue, I could eat anything and not gain weight. That does not hold true after you had your thyroid fixed. Okay. So I gained a lot of weight and then it became oh, what are you eating? You must be eating so good these days because look how big you've gotten. Or remember when you were skinny and so much prettier? You know, so it's like I, if I was too skinny or I'm too fat. And that stigma is for real. So like, you know, sometimes I get mad when people like you, my thin friends complain about like people commenting on their bodies. But like, it's legit because, you know, I kind of experience both sides of that. Well, weight is tricky if I can just jump in and share a little bit about that because uh, I think in our culture or in America in general, there's this uh, white American culture norm that thin and skinny is is right, is pretty, is um, is the way to live. And then that's what all the marketing encompasses, all of the clothing, all of the um, beauty products. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And, and truly, this is this is much deeper than just in the present moment. But what I think people believe is that weight is an indicator of health. So smaller means healthier, larger, or living in a larger body must mean you're not taking care of yourself. And that is so far from the truth. And certainly what Whitney and I practice uh, is not about the size of the body that you're in. We're not trying to change people's bodies. And I think that confuses people as dietitians, that that's not our primary focus. We want you to live your best life, and that might be in a larger body. Um, and that is, uh, I think, the biggest challenge for people, that exterior piece, the outside, the weight, what is presented to the world. Um, and especially if you've been in or you know people who've been in different sizes or different um, have been different weights over time, that that can be really confusing. But it's not connected to health. Not everybody buys into that, but it's not connected to health. So how's that? But but I think even as I was listening to Hilly and, and Lou share share that, I think that um, one of the things that came up, because I was thinking about um, food and what that means and or Lou's mentioned taboo, because even in a Native American community, you know, when, when she mentioned that, there is, there is, um, I, and, and when you throw in weight, um, and when I look at when I look at weight in the American Indian community, and when that began to happen, it happened after we were removed from the land, put onto reservations, and we weren't allowed uh, to hunt. We weren't allowed to continue our traditional way of living, which was gathering, hunting, those type of natural type things. And the federal government supplied food commodities, right? Cheeses, lard, canned meat, those kind of things. 
which changed our diet completely. But out of that, out of that came this, this, uh, um, item that we referred to as fry bread, flour, water, cook it in lard, right? Very tasty. But, um, <laughs> but it, it is such a part of our culture, but it's not, you know, we get into this idea that it was traditional and it wasn't traditional because it was, it came out of necessity. You know, you know what I'm saying? And I'm not trying to steer us away because I think that I'm trying, what I'm trying to do is figure out how do, do these kind of things, um, from our various backgrounds, our various communities lead into eating disorders for us. What, what is that connection? What would be that connection? I, I want to also mention what, you know, something that Angela, you had, you had said, um, I know that there are some communities, um, some culture, I know there are some cultures who, when, if a person is a larger person, that means they're better off and is considered to have had more money and resources. And so it's not always a bad thing in, in cultures for you to be bigger, but that does relate to Don's question of like, you know, when we think eating disorders, we think of all these body images that we're bombarded with in media. And how does that connection, how is that really made, you know, especially for, for you guys who work in the business? Yeah, that's such a great, um, both, it's so thought provoking. I hope we stay connected because I, I would definitely want y'all to come and speak at the conference year two because it, this is such a um, needed conversation. And Donald, I want to go back to something that you said of like what happened, right? Like intergenerationally that effect. And and please correct me if I use the, the wrong terminology, but when we think about Native Americans and indigenous people and all of the trauma and intergenerational, right? But what it, we... And then when you say, okay, if you look at people on reservations, what is the common denominator, right? Diabetes, heart disease, and obesity. Now put that same emphasis on those of Black Americans. What are we always told? We're the highest risk for diabetes, heart disease, obesity, X, Y, and Z. But if you believe that race is a social construct, right? So some white person said that Black and brown bodies were deemed um, not as good or not as well. Right. And we look at that, but then nobody ever talks about the effects of systemic oppression and racism. Cause you, like you just said, what happened generations before you, right? So as a biracial black woman in the South, like I love, I, you know, the South is what it is. One thing that I'll take away is the cooking in the South. Okay. But like, for me, the legacy of enslaved Black Americans and everything generationally that we went through, and High on the Hog is like one of the best Netflix documentaries ever. Agreed. <laughs> I love that of, documentary. Uh, yes. Yes, yes. I love, love, love that documentary. But it traces the food from West mm -hmm. Africa right, mm -hmm. through the transatlantic slave movement and how the newly kidnapped and enslaved how they had to make do with the food. And then we see that, we see that decades later, and then what were Black Americans given, particularly in the South? The same thing that you're talking about of commodities. So we're literally given this food 
we're told that our traditional way, we're stripped of everything culturally and our focus is white is good. So now we have this, now we have this impression that thinness and whiteness equates to health and thinness and whiteness equates to beauty. And so I think for a lot of people of color, it's the sub, that subliminal message is how eating disorders really matriculate in our communities. Because, I mean, we all have different backgrounds, right? But by and large, when you really think about communities of color, we're communal people and we're spiritual people, right? And every community naturally has this like movement of pattern that's been stripped away. And so I think that's really how, you know, mental health is very taboo in a a lot of our cultures and communities. And I think eating disorders, they really thrive on that. They thrive on the social social isolation and the tabooness, and they just continue to thrive and thrive. But because we don't talk about it in our communities, and Angela can speak to this too, that's why when a person of color is typically diagnosed with an eating disorder, they're at their sickest. Because we don't really have any screening or early intervention tools for people of color. Everything is geared towards that white, thin, female ideal. You know, it's interesting as you bring that 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 piece in because as I was looking through some of some of the writings and some 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 of the scholarly articles, one of the things that kept popping up was what you were saying there about how we frame. Um, even what it looks like. And so even when people are, are you, we see things trying to tell people what to look for, um, uh, what signs to look for, what, you know, ways to get engaged, it's all based in the experience of of, of white women. Um, and and then there are things that aren't on that list as a result of, of having that that view. So I'm, I'm really glad to, to, uh, to hear you kind of bring in that, you know, att- attacking even how we tell the story. Um, is absent us in our ways of being. If we think about also just the amount of stress in our BIPOC communities, I mean, the everyday trauma that folks are exposed through to rather systemic racism, largely speaking, uh, but also right now with the economy being what it is, um, with the inflation level and everyone, the economists keep saying we're not in a recession, but it's like a recession-like environment when we speak about the economic pressure and people having hardships economically to meet their rent or to be able to put gas in the car, things of that sort. And how, again, through marketing, mass marketing, food is a comfort. You know, food is a, this outlet that is supposed to help us it's within reach, uh, but yet to your points earlier um, that were made not only by Angela and Whitney, but also Don, it, the the food that, that is available to us is also unhealthy, right? It's a big departure from our natural health and it's laden with sodium and um high fats and things of that sort that are not good for our bodies. And I, I'm not going to get into space that I'm not trained in. So I defer to both, both of you for that, but speak to us about that, just that burden of how people seek comfort in what is within proximity of their reach, which is food, but not good food. Um, and what are the all, you know, the other, outlets for folks to begin to reach to 
for a level of comfort that is not going to have, you know, some risks attached to them with regard to their health. Um, so I'm going to say something that's a little controversial, but I don't believe in good food or bad food. Like I don't assign a moral value to food. Mm. And, um, we have a five-year-old and we, we have a very food neutral household. And so we, every food item is just food, but we teach her that food does different things in her body. Right. So like if she eats a cupcake and only eats a cupcake, she's going to have so much energy, but that energy might not be sustained. So if she eats the cupcake, she's also going to have some protein or some sort of fat with it and kind of teaching her, you know, the, how to pair things. And so that's how we approach food. We don't, we don't label food. Um, we don't moralize it. It's, you know, food is food. Um, and kind of going back what I get that question a lot as a dietitian of, help me eat healthier, help me eat better. Or, um, the doctor said I got diagnosed with binge eating disorder, but it's because I eat too many carbohydrates. And so I never tell somebody don't eat what you don't have access to. It's about the pairing, right? So if you live in, I live in Memphis, you know, we're constantly voted as like top five of the most dangerous, uh, cities in America and the poorest city in America. And we don't have a lot of access to a lot of fresh things, and so one is very intentional as I live in a 65%, I live in a 75% non-white city and a 65% black city. And so it's very intentional what has been done in Memphis. And so when I'm working with somebody that has a lot of food rules, it's really getting to the root of why, why are we labeling food as good or bad and how does food items affect your individual body, right? So yeah, you, let's say you do have kidney disease. It's not that we're never going to have sodium, but what do we, how do we choose the best foods for your individual body? That's so important. I mean, one thing that I always struggled with, especially after like I gained all this weight, I was like, okay, I want to try to lose weight, right? Well, I want to be healthier and have more energy and all that stuff. But also, you know, it it was really hard for me to find um, somebody who knew all the nutrition details and diets and stuff who understood the diet that I have, right? And so the hardest part for me, as far as like, the healthcare system here and everything was the the clinic I went to, their dietitian was like an older white lady, which is great, but she really didn't understand when I was trying to explain to her rice and noodles and how much pork we eat in our in our culture, you know, and and how um events are very important and eating at an event is very important to show, you know, that you respect and honor the people who you who cooked for you and that kind of stuff. It was really hard for her to try to envision that. So it was really hard for me to change any of my eating habits. And I like what you guys are saying as far as like, you know, just looking at it differently or in our relationship with food differently. But I think that's what makes it so powerful when you say you're doing a, a conference on eating disorders for BIPOC communities, because I, you know, I think we really do face different things than the dominant community. Absolutely. Because you ain't going to Big Mama's house and not eating on Sunday. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Nope, nope. And and pass the Tabasco sauce, right? Okay. You know, I'm I'm curious what, um, because, you know, one of the beauties of of having a conference is that you get to go off and look at all these different intersections around this general area. And I'm curious, 
what are some surprising intersections that folks don't talk about that may get explored at this conference as you get all these folks to come together? What are the different ties? I mean, for a while, we weren't even tying, we weren't even disaggregating our data. And so we were only looking at aggregate data. And now we've advanced. I'm curious what, what is, needs to get out there that, that, that folks really aren't, or, or intersections that are, that are happening that you might not even think is connected to this issue? Oh, that's good. We've got some good, great topics and a lot of great intersections. I mean, Whitney, jump in, but I'm just thinking right off the top, um, eating disorders seem to kind of fit. Like if I just say eating disorders, you probably already have this ideal perception of what that would look like or a person, a body type, uh, a gender like that, that probably we all kind of have this thought in our mind and it's pretty similar. It's what's portrayed in the, in the media, I'm sure. But what we want to show is that eating disorders have no, like it, it, it doesn't, all humans can be affected by this. And I'm sure we all know someone, whether they've actually been diagnosed or not, um, who struggle with this. It's a mental illness. It's not just a problem with food. I think food if we're speaking from more of like the medical world, uh, the food or what you eat or how much you eat kind of gets blamed um, or where the blame is put when we're talking about eating disorders. And that's not actually true. So some of the intersections we have here, you might not even think about. Um, so we have eating disorders in the Southeast Asian community. We have um, uh, partner violence and eating disorders and how that affects or people control the food of their partners when they're in an abusive relationship. We have um, disability justice and eating disorders. Um, we have foster care, right? Whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. You got to explain that last one, Angela. Which one? So, which one? The, 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 yeah, the disability. What? What is that? Oh, disability uh, justice, yeah. Yeah, go ahead, Whitney. You just uh, did that recording. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Yeah, so we... We know that there is a lot of, when we think about the broad mental health and medical world, it's very ableist. And so we wanted to bring somebody in that could really speak to uh, disability justice. And when I tell you, Angela and I have learned so much, even in how we were asking for materials. So usually uh, we send everything by PDF and this this disability justice advocate was telling us that... um, you know, we really need to start giving the option for word because people that are seeing impaired, they cannot, their materials on their screen, and I know I'm not saying this all the way correctly, the screen protector um, or the tools that they use can't convert things in PDF, but they can in Word. And so something as simple like that, or having the captions that can read aloud, um, doing the image descriptions, if you use Instagram. Um, and even yesterday, I, I did the pre-recording and the person was, um, when they introduced themselves, did just a very quickly, like what they looked like, the physicality to describe for people who um, are vision impaired. So that like definitely blew my mind. Um, Yeah. Okay. So we have um, eating disorder and the Latina population. We have the minor, the model minority myth and eating disorders and adoptees. Um, Angela already mentioned the intersection of foster care, Um, and foster youth with eating disorders. We have the immigrant experience. Um, That was something that uh, was Angela and I were very passionate about is really bringing to light eating disorders and people who identify as undocumented immigrants or first generation, uh, particularly the barriers to access care. 
Um, we have uh, eating disorders in the black community. We have a section on um, uh, uh, Islam and Ramadan and eating disorders. And um, we have two trans providers that are going to be speaking on eating disorders. And one is going to be doing one on faith, food, and gender in the age of supremacy. And then um, the other trans provider is going to be um, how to do trauma-informed care uh, for trans folks that have eating disorders. Wow. Hey, Whitney, guys, I, didn't a, hear, I didn't hear anything on uh, indigenous population. I know, Donna. I know. We tried. We tried. We tried. It's not too Seriously? late. We can add you to the schedule. We can add you yeah. to the schedule. <laughs> I nominate Don Eubanks to be in your conference. Whoa, 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 whoa. You know, but I think, um, you know, I one thing that, that came to my mind, and yeah, I'm a social worker by profession, all right? And I used to teach in the School of Social Work at Metropolitan State University up until last year till I retired. But there's a lot of other things that I've done in my life. And um, and so, you know, this topic's really intrigued me, but I think that one, Angela or, 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 or Wendy, either one of you two, but, you know, when you say eating disorders, you're right. Different things probably... Different and similar type things tend to jump into our minds. But yet, you know, I think somebody, one of you two need to probably um, define what what is meant by eating disorder. Because we've been kind of talking, you know, I feel like we've been biting off different rolls on a corn on a cob, but we haven't really got to the, you know, to exactly what that is. And there may be many individuals in our audience that listen to our, our podcast be like me, you know, because, uh, you know, all I know is that <clears throat> every day I have an opportunity to learn something new. And right now, I'm not sure what you mean by eating disorder, right? So could one of you or both of you take some time and tell us what that is? Yeah, well, well let's, let's definitely do this together because, you know, we can take the clinical route to say, um, you know, per the DSM, what the actual diagnosable criteria would be for what we would call an eating disorder. But we're talking about the lar even larger umbrella term to this and, and disordered behaviors with food. Um, so we want to encompass all of that in our conference. And it's what we do in, in our day-to-day -day work. Um, but we certainly have those who are diagnosed, have met the clinical criteria for eating disorders, and there's classifications for that. So we're talking about, um, you know, anorexia. We're talking about people in larger bodies, smaller bodies. We're talking about binge eating disorder. Um, our presenters are in all body shapes and sizes. Uh, and that was very important for us, too, to have people who, even in the nutrition profession, are speaking from a larger body. I think that's important. You know, there are... Um, what is it, less than 3% of dietitians are black in the United States. So we, when, you, when you're struggling, I think you said this, or once somebody had said this earlier, when you were struggling in college and were trying to look for someone to talk about your diet with, you got a white lady at the hospital probably. Like there, you wanna see someone who can relate to you or at least have some understanding. And the population of, um, uh, those clinicians and people doing the work that we're doing is very small. I forget what the other uh, data really says, but within the indigenous population and uh, Hispanic, like it's the numbers are very small and majority of people are, would identify as female. So you're kind of getting a certain classification, a certain schooling of, of, of educators, but I think we're sort of a new wave of that. 
So the actual clinical diagnoses, um, I think probably the most common is anorexia, bulimia nervosa. Um, there are some new uh, terms that may be uh, new to your ears, um, OSFED um, and ARFED. And those are, are sort of uh, catch-all sort of classifications for people who have more abnormal uh, behaviors with food, but don't necessarily fit in those um, more commonly known, I would say, classifications of eating disorders. So those could be things like pica, those could be things um, like uh, both binging and purging, but not meeting weight criteria. Um, what am I missing, Whitney? There's... Um... Well, you know, the one thing that I'm probably most aware of is is um eating when stressed or using food to calm your nerves does that make sense i mean you know yeah we talked um, about this briefly a few shows ago don when we kind of did a check-in with our with the hosts um lose unfortunately you weren't there with us but one thing we had mentioned was don had mentioned um, gaining some weight that he had lost during the pandemic. And I had mentioned losing some weight from stress during the pandemic. <laughs> and so I think, you know, just the way that when we think about how stress plays into our eating habits. Food and weight changes or weight fluctuations and changes with your eating patterns due to stress does not necessarily equate to eating disorder. We are all human in nature, there's an emotional connection with food. And when we talk about the BIPOC community, there's a, a much deeply rooted connection with food. So um, you throw stress in there and all these other things that we're dealing with in life, a pandemic, which none of us have really, not many of us have actually lived through such a thing before that could have festered or created more of, um, you know, disordered behavior with food or even an actual eating disorder, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you are struggling with an eating disorder. I think it does help people to understand and relate to one another because again, we're all emotional beings and I think we can all identify times we've used food, uh, to help soothe, to help through emotional times. Food is connected to funerals and this food is connected to, um, you know, your spiritual part of your, like there's, there's such a connection that involves food. Um, and that, that also includes stress. Like some people uh, restrict or avoid eating in real stressful times and others um, maybe eat more or crave particular types of foods, sweet or salty or crunchy or something like that. And you might've found yourself gravitating in one direction in the pandemic when your stress was really, really high. Um, but that does not necessarily equate to an eating disorder. We're talking over um, periods of time. Again, when we're talking about clinical um, uh, diagnosis of an eating disorder, which people in the BIPOC community don't necessarily always um, uh, get diagnosed. Oftentimes it's attributed to something else. Or maybe if you lost some weight, this would go away. Or, you know, you can kind of pinpoint different reasons. It, it, it can be overlooked um, in communities of color for sure. So I don't know if I kind of jumped around. I didn't want to, I don't want to give all the clinical data specifically. I don't know if that'll make sense to people, but there are primary things we call symptom behavior. And that is around binging, which is lar eating large volumes of food that is purging or, and that is, um, ways of getting rid or compensatory behaviors with food. And isn't just 
uh, one way. There are multiple ways to do that through movement, through getting rid of your food in, in various ways. Um, all of those aren't necessary to kind of go over, but there is like a, a criteria to go through. But I think what a majority of people probably uh, can relate to most is that disordered behavior with food. So if our listeners are wondering, do they fall in that camp or not of being clinically diagnosed? What would they, what should they be looking for in terms of signs, in terms of their own health and mental health status or their loved ones in trying to ascertain whether or not they should be seeking medical attention? That's the first question. But also then the second part is how, they might advocate for themselves if a provider is minimizing um, the potential, right? To your point, right? Sometimes providers are dismissive and they don't validate the concerns that our BIPOC bodies are bringing forth for a variety of reasons. So if you could help us understand those two. You bring up such a great question and also something that's severely lacking, we don't have any standardized evidence-based screening tools for early intervention in the BIPOC community. So it's very hard because, again, I think that is what contributes to so many BIPOC folks end up being really sick because doctors often dismiss their symptoms because in medical school and school to be a dietitian and um, you know social work counseling, you're you're truly taught that eating disorders majorly majorly majority affect than white women, and so they don't even know how to screen in people that have higher weight bodies. You know, professionals again, they not only not higher weight bodies, but in people of color. Most of the black women that I had during the pan pandemic that sought me out had clinically diagnosed binge eating disorder, but were told that they were pre-diabetic and needed to lose weight. And the thing about binge eating disorder is there, it's, there's a restrictive component. So the doctor never addressed the restriction. They only focused on the binging, which then internalized to the client. They helped, they held so much shame and guilt. So, mm -hmm. um, I love what Angela was saying about the diagnoses. It really is. It's that disruption in food and body. And so I think having open and honest conversations, is there a fear around a particular food item? Is there an avoidance around this? Is there an obsession with thinness? Is there an obsession with weight loss? Is there an obsession of only eating, you know, maybe a certain particular food item that we think is good? Is there some, some fear, things like that? I think those are all questions. I, I also look at poverty, trauma, food scarcity as well um, during the screening. Everything you guys are saying, right? And then I just keep thinking, going back to that experience, um, Angel, you mentioned about uh, not being able to find a dietitian that looks like me or, or understands my lifestyle um, or, you know, the lifestyle of my community. Um, it was one of those things where, like, my provider was like, okay, you're gaining a lot of weight quickly. You know, you should talk to a dietitian. There's one dietitian to serve the whole clinic. And to get on her schedule was like three months out. And so, you know, it just seems like such a such a serious health topic. Yet I feel like there just aren't resources as available to us as if we were to, you know, stab somebody, right? Like, those sorts of healthcare, um, the tier of like important healthcare, 
issues within this country. I mean, I don't know if I don't know if that if that reflects what you guys see. <laughs> and that, you know, like you both said, you have your own practices. So like, how does that come for somebody like me who's like, okay, I have to wait three months to see the dietitian that takes my insurance? Like, how do they get from that to like working with people like you guys who actually look like us? Uh, so we did create a first of its kind BIPOC eating disorder database that's free. So that way it's for providers and uh, clients that they can look by state and it's broken down into therapists by state and dietitians by state so that they can um, try to find a provider of color. Um, So that's one way that we really did try to address it. And then Angela and I do a lot of free mentoring. Um, We started a Black ED, Black Eating Disorder RD peer group that meets once a month. So we could really try to um, encourage and uplift and train younger Black RDs to be in the world of eating disorders. So when you say RD, can you just let our, our listeners know what that means? Sure. So an RD is a registered dietitian. Donald, there is a um, indigenous nutritionist on Instagram. They they do more um, disordered eating, but not clinical eating disorders. There is a um, Asian um, eating disorder RD group, and it is it's ran by a good friend of mine who is Chinese American. There's somebody who is South Asian, and they're um, Korean American. And I, I believe Japanese American who is a uh, dietitian and they um, all work in clinical eating disorders and are trying to increase um, RDs and in the um, Asian population. And then Delina, who is a guest speaker, um, runs a Latina, it's, I think it's La- your Latina nutritionist and she works in um, disordered eating. And then she recently hired a younger RD, who is Spanish speaking and works with the Latinx population and eating disorders. And so we all kind of come together as often as we can um, for like BIPOC groups, but each have um, individual niches as well. And just to kind of elaborate on your question a little bit more, how do I find a dietitian that looks like me? I think that is part of the problem. There are not enough of us. And I think part of that is, well, there's a couple components. One, it's very difficult to get this degree. There are a lot of barriers to becoming a dietitian. So uh, that uh, negatively impacts the BIPOC population. Mm-hmm. It is a very costly degree. It's a very, it's a lot of years of um, education. And then there's a very competitive internship uh, afterwards <clears throat> that you're not paid for. Uh, that you need to work, um, in my case, over a year. It's around a year, but a certain number of hours. And so again, when we're talking about people who may have um, families and may have income barriers, um, it, it's very difficult to become a dietitian. And we can we could spend all day talking about that, but that's one reason. Um, it, it's just a, a huge challenge. Oh, and post the internship, you also need to pass a national exam and then stay. Um, updated every um, so many years with your credentials and your um, uh, continuing education as many like medical degrees would have, but it's very challenging and very difficult and competitive to become a dietitian. So 
it's already a small uh, um, market. And then then to get a, um, somebody from a marginalized background is even more so challenging. And so I would say even in this pandemic right now, I, I personally take insurance and I do out-of-pocket pay. So my schedule is very tight and very full. And I think you would find that with most dietitians who are working in private practice, uh, probably everywhere right now in the mental health field. But um, I know that's really difficult for people to find someone they actually want to work with or wait lists can be really long. Um, I would encourage people to still seek out someone you would like to work with. And if you're seeing someone in the meantime, to make sure you're getting immediate help, but to actually be able to work with someone that understands you and you feel like you can relate to and open up to is probably the most beneficial. But yes, I get that wait lists are are, are very long. Um, just looking at mine, especially dividing my time with speaking and other engagements that my, you know, outpatient or, or clinical time is, is lessened by that. Um, but the other piece I wanted to add too, as far as why it, it's hard to maybe find a dietitian is it's really challenging in the eating to get into this work of eating disorders. It's such a small niche and it's not necessarily open to people who look like us. Um, if you go to intensive programming, higher level care for eating disorders and mental health, you would see an entirely white board. You would see um, mostly white women and younger doing the work. Um, and this is a fairly new field for the most part since the 80s, really, since treatment centers and research was really starting to be done and, you know, being added to the DSM and such. This is uh, uh, difficult to find. Uh, a dietitian who um, identifies as BIPOC. So, Angela, I'm so glad that you unpacked that for us because that was one of my pressing questions is the pipeline and, and how do we begin to change that? Uh, by way of comparison, I had uh, worked for the mayor of St. Paul um, in the early 2000s. And at one point he had uh, appointed me as director of human rights and equal economic opportunity for the city. And as part of that, um, I would, had been approached by the fire chief and the HR director saying uh, that they couldn't figure out how to get more BIPOC firefighters and women to apply to be firefighters. So I, of course, asked them, well, what's the minimum qualification? Um, that might be a barrier. And indeed, indeed it was. It, you had to be an EMT. And I looked at the EMT, the cost of EMT training, and back then it was a couple of thousand dollars. Of course, it continues to increase. That was over 10 years ago. And I created um, a pipeline program called the EMS Academy in St. Paul, the first of its kind in the country, to then provide that training at no cost, specifically for low-income BIPOC St. Paul residents and women to apply so we not only did we design that and we had um, that training then locally, meaning they didn't have to drive out to a suburb, to a college where these professors taught. And then we also secured funding to subsidize it so that the students could actually earn money when they learned the program. And so they had like 1,400 hours of instructional training to then get them to pass the EMT exam and become full-fledged EMTs. Um, that was a pathway then that opened up other careers for the students to not only if they wanted to be EMTs, that was great, but then some of them went on to become um, registered nurses. Others went on to get further training to become paramedics. 
That program was then replicated in the city of Minneapolis uh, because the initial program was only for St. Paul residents. So we replicated that then in Minneapolis when I worked in Minneapolis. And then in the last year, I've been approached by some other leaders to create a similar program, but for specifically for paramedics. So I, I put that out uh, in the universe of possibilities that maybe there might be a way to create a similar pipeline for our BIPOC uh, communities to get into the registered dietitian uh, space because it is just so critical as, as we've learned through your uh, remarks uh, today. Uh, and also uh, help folks through the systemic barriers that you've noted also, Angela, um, and being able then to just invite funders out there, invite policymakers to think outside the box and to look at how just because it is this way doesn't mean it always has to be this way. I mean, you have opened the door, both of you, in creating this national conference and exposing all these issues um, that we can similarly have, a, you know, hopefully a national initiative or at least um, starting off small in one city and then uh, branching out where we then create these opportunities by investment. I mean, that's the only way this is going to happen, right? The the cost for this training, the cost of working for a year as an intern unpaid uh -huh. is not available. It's not realistic. It's not sustainable for our communities that have been underinvested and under-resourced uh -huh. for generations. But I, I think that it's not just in um, the specialty that Angela described. I mean, as she was talking... I was thinking of what it takes to become a, uh, get a master's in social work. It's sure. a very similar type mm -hmm. process as I taught and, and, and sought that degree. And you have, we actually have to complete two unpaid internships, right? That are, um, for, uh, many hours to complete that. But so first of all, we know you're having a, the first, first of its kind BIPOC three-day conference and who should attend this conference because you know as we're talking i'm hearing oh you know this might be kind of deep and maybe it's going to be professionals who work in you know around mental health and, and 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 others who are you know providers who and others who kind of work in this but is it also for everyday bipoc populations to be able to attend this conference and actually learn. And I guess that's why I'm asking you or you or Whitney to kind of clarify that for us. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so who's the conference for? It is definitely a frequently asked question. Um, it's really for all providers and um, who want to participate and learn from a full lineup of BIPOC clinicians, but also you don't have to be a provider or a clinician. Uh, we have some folks who are registering who are not social workers, who are not therapists, who are not doctors, who are not dietitians, um, who hold no degrees and are equally as excited about this conference. So it truly is for anyone who wants to learn and understand about the BIPOC experience um, as it relates to eating disorders. But conference is going to be held this year. So it's July 20th through the 22nd of 2022. And the website, it's bipoc eating disorders.showit.site. 
We could also share our um, social media, which is where we're dropping a lot of um, announcements, surprises, and information, the schedule. Um, on Instagram, you can find us at BIPOC Eating Disorders, um, BIPOC.Eating Disorders. You know, the other, or the thing that I hear in the community, right? Because I'm a big guy, you know, Helene, Helene mentioned that. But, uh, you know, the term that the term that I'm used to hearing is that I'm big bone, right? I'm a big bone boy. Yeah, so I'm big bone. But this eating disorder thing just really has me intrigued because there's there's um, I know we talked a little bit about um, about, you know, some of the emotional things that that uh, that play into this. And then I can think back on, you know, certain um, behaviors that each of us have probably learned in our own families. You know, my father, I can, you know, when we would have, when we would have meat, I can hear my father telling me that I have to get that meat to the bone. Well, you know, he came out of the depression, right? And so nothing was wasted. And I occasionally find myself, hear myself passing that same message on at times to my kids. And then I have to kind of step back because that's not, you know, I, but these kind of, you know, messages that we heard around food, and I don't know how that plays in or if it even plays in to eating disorders. But like I said, there are just so many things that I wanted to bring up and we're just running out of time and it just, it just frustrates me. And, and so maybe hopefully one of these days we might be able to have you two come back. Cause I think that there's, you know, the fact that you two are, are, um, one of few in the country that do this, the fact that you weren't successful in finding someone from the uh, Native American community to be, to actually present in this is disheartening, right? And, and uh, it is to me, and, ho- and, I, and I think I heard in your voice, it was disheartening to you also. So I'm, you know, I'm shouting out to our community that if there are any anyone out there who has this expertise or knowledge, even if you lack the credentials, I think that there are many of us in our community that know about these traditional type things and may be able to address it because that's historically and traditionally how these things were handled. So if there's anyone out here that that um, think that they have information that would be beneficial, please contact Angela or Whitney. Um, this has been a great discussion. I think that for our communities, um, I have to admit, it's a topic that I've never had a discussion about eating disorders in our BIPOC communities. You're either big boned or you're not, right? And so, you know, but it exists. And the fact that we're misdiagnosed, and I understand that one 100% how that can happen into our communities of color in the indigenous community. So before we close, I'm wondering if Angela or Whitney, are there some final thoughts that you would like to share with our with our audience before we close here? Um, just that we're so excited and and part of just the passion for this is I, I heard a uh, Auntie uh, Oprah Winfrey asked Viola Davis, you know, why is representation so important? And what Viola Davis said, and it always stuck with me, is she said, because you want to see a manifestation of your dream. And so that's mm-hmm. what we really hope that 
this conference is, is for every BIPOC provider and, and client and patient out there that they really see that they can get access to help um, and that they, you know, can really be providers and uh, and other careers that we historically haven't seen ourselves in. Oh, what can I add? That was beautiful. Um, we hope you can join us at this conference. Uh, we hope for this to continue on annually. Uh, but what I want to just leave you with in terms of close, closing thoughts, um, just be kind and gentle to yourself and those around you, especially in your community, around the way that you talk about body, your body and food, the food you eat and not passing any particular judgment to that. Um, so it's about working on that relationship with food and not feeling shamed by what you eat or how much you eat or the body that you live in. So be kind to one another and to be kind to yourself about what you have in terms of what you have to work with at this moment. So I think that this has been a fantastic topic and I think we may have to come back and revisit again. I'm Don Eubanks, associate of Dendro's Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the State of Minnesota. Any opinions and insights that I've shared today are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church, Duluth, Minnesota, and senior partner at Dendros Group. And I'm Holly Lee, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories. I'm Angela Goins registered and licensed dietitian here in Minneapolis, Minnesota, owner of Rooted Nutrition Services. And thank you so much for having me today. I'm Whitney Trotter, owner of Bluff City Health, registered dietitian and nurse in Memphis, Tennessee. And it was so great being with you all today. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota communities with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com.